Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're re- Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Hello there. It is Carol Jurgensen Sheets, aka Carol the Coach. And this is Sex Help with Carol the Coach. I am here to help you with understanding sexual addiction, partner trauma hypersexual, problematic, compulsive behavior. We don't care what you call it. We just know that it is rampant. And people are listening to this show every week to learn more and more about themselves, about resources, and what is available to you when it comes to good treatment. That's what this is about. And that's why I oftentimes will say to you, hey, I get that this is typically an hour show, and that may be a little bit long for your um, listening pleasure. A lot of men especially who have sex addiction also have attention deficit disorder, or personally, I don't buy that for a second, but I do think they've trained their brains to mimic what attention deficit disorder looks like. Regardless, it still feels the same way. And so you can go to my YouTube channel. It is Sex Help with Carol the Coach, same name as this show. And listen to what I have to say about resources and treatment and strategies for sex addiction or couples work or partner trauma. Those are typically six, eight, or ten minutes long. So I really encourage you to go to YouTube. Put in Sex Help with Carol the Coach, and I have probably 70 or 80 videos now that can help guide you through um, this process of recovery. 
And, you know, you said, you heard me say that you know, I don't care what we call it. And actually, the president of ITAP, which is the International Institute for Trauma Addiction Professionals, that's who we are. We are CSATs through ITAP. Stephanie Carnes sent us some interesting commentary on the importance of including compulsive sexual behavior in the ICD, which is the big diagnostic statistical manual. It's not the DSM, but it is the global statistical um, classification. And she actually had seen a letter published by Krauss in World Psychiatry. And he says, you know, we will likely be calling this disorder compulsive sexual behavior. And he wanted to discuss the potential impact of including CSB disorder in the ICD-11 for four areas. And it's interesting because we are all in sync with how he feels. He says, for many individuals who experience persistent patterns of difficulty or failures in controlling intense, repetitive sexual impulses or urges that result in sexual behavior associated with marked distress or impairment in personal, family, social, educational, occupational, or other areas of their functioning, it is very important to be able to name and identify their problem. It is also important that care providers, clinicians, and counselors from whom individuals may seek help are familiar with compulsive sexual behaviors. Again, CSB. During our studies involving over 3,000 subjects seeking treatment for CSB, we have frequently heard that individuals suffering from CSB encounter multiple barriers during their seeking of help or in contact with clinicians. Patients report that clinicians may avoid the topic, state that such problems do not exist, or suggest that one has a high sexual drive and should accept it instead of treating the CSBs that may feel egodystonic and lead to multiple negative consequences. Now, I know that's a lot of jargon, but what Krauss is really saying is that the clinical world has not caught up with compulsive sexual behaviors. And so there are many organizations that want to say, hey, you just have a high sex drive, or hey, you know, you just need to be kinder to yourself. There's nothing abnormal about this, or hey, um, these kind of problems don't exist. You know, you can figure it out by uh, playing with more sex toys or having more partners. And what we as CSATs know is that clinicians are not looking at the consequences of this behavior and they're not looking at how, again, people with compulsive sexual behaviors are destroying their lives, you know, it is affecting their work, affecting their families, affecting their friendships. And so it's really important 
that there is some well-defined criteria for CSB disorder so that the development of training programs on how to assess and treat individuals with these symptoms can occur. And this is for clinicians, psychologists, psychiatrists, and, and other providers of mental health care. So this is exciting that um, Krauss in, again, World Psychiatry presented the diagnostic criteria for compulsive sexual behaviors. And basically, so he said, you know, if there are compulsive sexual behaviors that are interfering with different areas of one's life, that we really need to take a look at this and help people learn how to cope. And I'm all for that because there just isn't enough information out there yet. But mark my words, and I've said it before, we are going to be dealing with an epidemic. We already are. And it probably isn't going to get the research, the time, the money, or the treatment it deserves until we are on a large scale treating kids with this kind of behavior. And you've heard me say it before, that's how I got into this business. Because kids were having oral sex on the bus and other kids were videotaping it. And schools and superintendents did not know what to do with it. And, you know, when you're in elementary school or middle school, you do a lot of copycatting. If somebody does something that's funny or unusual or absurd, there will be others that will copy that to see if they can get the same reaction. And then what I believe is that there is so much negative, violent, angry, horrifying porn out there that kids are being exposed to, they don't know how to cope with it. It embeds their brain and implants a lot of negative social interaction responses that will affect their ability to have good, meaningful relationships with other kids and other peers their age. And so, I I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. I know enough about human behavior, and I've been working long enough in this field that, unfortunately, we're just not going to deal with it in the way that we should until we see 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-olds being so horrifically affected, similar to what we're seeing with all those school shootings. Okay. Now, i got to tell you, I don't usually do this, but I got contacted by a colleague of mine, Thomas Gagliano, and Tom's been on the show before, and he said... Hey, Carol, I would really like to talk about what I believe is going on with the Me Too movement, with Harvey Weinstein, Um, and I'd like to help people to understand whether it's a sex addiction or not. Now, interestingly enough, I have my own feeling about it. I do not think it's a form of sexual addiction, although certainly... One type of sexual addiction is exploitation. This is so power and control-driven 
that I think Harvey is an offender. But I can't wait to hear what Thomas says. And, you know, he he is well-educated. He has written a book that's it's, it's really interesting. It's called, well, he's written two books. The Problem Was Me, and that's actually the name of his website, uh, theproblemwasme.com, and Don't Put Your Crap in Your Kid's Diaper, The Cleanup Cost That Can Last a Lifetime. I mean, this guy just says it like he means it, and he means it like he says it, and uh, he will not mince words tonight. So I hope that you're, you'll stay tuned for an interesting and very relevant show on what the heck is going on. You know, when I, I do a lot of uh, television appearances, especially when people are having difficulty with sex addiction, and very clearly... I got a lot of friends and colleagues that contacted me when this whole Me Too epidemic came came out in the open and said, wow, ground is fertile for you to be on the news every single day talking about sex addiction. And I said, well, I don't necessarily believe it is sex addiction. Now, I really think it's offending behavior and it's power and control and there was rape involved and... I'm not saying that you can't have a sexual addiction and have those characteristics, but you guys know, and you women know, this is not typical sexual addiction. I mean, is there exploitation by working with sex traffickers and working with sex slaves? And yes, there is. But most men and women that get involved in sexual addiction do have compulsive sexual behaviors that they want to control they've tried they promise themselves they're going to stop they hate themselves for that behavior and not once have i seen harvey weinstein talk about i wish i hadn't have done this um i've never seen him look sad i just haven't seen that remorse and that self-loathing that i see with people with this addiction so again cannot wait uh, to have thomas on the show now, i got to ask you, every week you should be adding a tool to your recovery program. It might be an affirmation. I am worthy. Um, I can be successful. I'm a work in progress. So, that, you know, think about an affirmation that actually fits your needs. Because you have to put good things into your head. Because I do believe in the law of attraction. I believe what you put out there, you get back. And if you're self-defeating and negative, and if you can't uh, recognize your own strengths and your own progress, you're more likely to fail in this recovery movement. Maybe it is actually doing some mirror work and looking at yourself three times a day in the mirror and saying, you know, Robert, I love you. Tom? I really love you. You are working hard on this. You are worthwhile. You're amazing. You know, mirror work gets you to look at yourself and begin to believe some of the things that you need to believe to be a better person. And the old saying, fake it till you make it, came from AA 
and sponsors who said, you know, you got to act as if you can handle some of these things and put your feet in front of each other and do the walk, even if you're scared, even if you're anxious, even if there's trepidation. And if you do it long enough and consistently enough, it will make a difference. So I'm going to ask you, if you're reading your... um, Gentle path books, if you are looking at the Bible, if you're doing some um, Eastern religion, what tool can you add to your program that's going to promote more recovery and better self-esteem? That's my question for the day. While I get ready to talk with Thomas Cagliano, I mean, this man is hilarious. He's direct. He's honest. And Tom, welcome to the show. Carol, how you doing? I am doing well. I was so glad that you were willing to talk about the situation. Absolutely. I think it's it's something that needs to be talked about. Um, uh, sex addiction, especially. You know, I, I have a, I feel bad for celebrities because they're not able to really gain what the regular Joe can gain and walk into meetings and and talk to other people and make fellowship their priority as easy as other people can, and it really becomes a detriment in their recovery. Oh, 100%. And, you know, i got to tell you, there is some static on your line. I think you should hang up, call back, and maybe even um, sit in a different location when you do that. Okay, I'll, I'll try that. I'll call you right back. Okay. Of bye course bye. you will. Look forward to it. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, you know, one of the things I know is sometimes that static can't be heard by the person that is um, talking. And I I really want him to have a nice, clean show. So we are talking with Thomas Gagliano, and he's going to be talking about that casting couch and, and how it has affected people and how people are affected um, by their own sense of power. You know, empowerment is the name of the game. That is what recovery is all about. And so Thomas is going to be sharing with us how does one go about finding their own truth and their own power. And if there's one thing we know, it's that anybody can be empowered when they're authentic, when they're transparent, and when they really um, work on honesty. And that is so crucial. There is just no doubt about it. Um, You know, so many people who are working with addiction, um, you know, they'll say, what do I need to do? And I say, well, the first thing you have to do is really work on your ability to become honest about everything in your life, not just about acting out, not just about slips or relapses, but about yourself, about what you're doing to promote your own mental health. What is it that you can do that lets everybody know, you know, every single person that you can and will be successful. And so truly, I ask you, 
what do you got going in your life that shows the world that you can be honest and transparent and authentic and genuine? I mean, what does that look like? That is the question. So I just happen to know that there's probably a secret that you have that you haven't shared with anybody, not your sponsor, not your wife or husband, not even your friend. And so I'm going to say, hey, what does that look like? Get honest with yourself. Because when you do, when you're honest with yourself, you can do anything. Now, I'm going to check and see if Thomas has joined us on the line. Thomas, can you hear us? And now, I don't think he can, but there he is. Thomas, welcome yeah. back. To back Sex again. Yeah, we're having a huge lightning storm here in Jersey. Uh, and in Brooklyn, uh, you can tell I'm from Brooklyn, but it, it, I don't know what what airways it's affecting. So I tried yeah, this I'll phone. Does what, it sound better? Clearer now, so I'm very grateful for that because I sure, want the sure. listening audience to hear your take on this whole Harvey Weinstein epidemic. Um, tell right. me a little bit. What are your thoughts? I mean, what do you think's going on? Well, you know, if if I might, before Carol, you would just talking and listening to you. You see, one of the problems, I'm a recovering, multiply less recovering addict. One of the problems or obstacles we have as addicts is we at some point have to challenge our core beliefs. Challenge, as you know, I'm big into childhood messages. That's about my first book, The Problem Was Me. And we have to challenge those beliefs. Let me give you an example. I facilitate groups for recovering addicts. And I have one group that has people that are similar, ritualistic with their sexual behavior, as you hear the celebrities do. Now, you know, when a guy in group shares his vulnerability and his secrets, everyone in group thinks it's amazing. It's courageous. Wow, that guy really has guts. Yet the guy who shares it thinks he's a wimp. He thinks he's going to be laughed at or judged. So, again, we have to challenge some of the beliefs we grew up in, some of the messages we received in childhood, some of the messages we received from society that tell us that being vulnerable is indeed courageous. It is indeed something uh, we all need to do when every part of our body, our mind, our thinking is telling us, what are you, crazy? You're going to get judged. You're going to get put down. Because, you know, as a recovering addict, I grew up in a household where if I shared feelings or, God forbid, cried, my dad called me his little girl. That was the message I got. So, you know, in life, as I learned to recover, I had to trust the process that Tom wasn't in control of. Now, that's hard to use that word trust when you learned early on that if you were vulnerable, bad things happened. So we have to challenge that. That's one of the things I teach group members. We have to challenge somebody's early core beliefs and somebody's early messages we received in childhood. Okay, so just tell our listening audience for a second, how did you combat that? Because obviously your dad probably did not know that he was being abusive and um, 
affecting your self-esteem at a young age, he was probably raising you like he had been raised. Absolutely. He's carrying down messages, and that's what has to be broken. But you remember children are egocentric. So when my dad's out drinking, not coming home when he should, and when he comes home, he's hurting people. Okay, I don't say, gee, at eight years old and nine, dad is an alcoholic. I don't say that. Rather, I say, what's the matter with me? I must be unlovable. I must be a bad kid. Or my dad wouldn't be doing this. There's where the core belief starts, and that starts to tell me I can't trust others for my emotional, physical, and nurturing needs. But I need something else to fill that void. Then I go to addiction. So this is what happens to most addicts. It starts early on a feeling that they're not good enough. It comes from messages that your parents can't uh, can't resolve conflict or you don't see them resolving or regulating the discomfort when they're discomforted. And those messages are carried into adult life. So that's what happened with me. That's why I fought recovery because I didn't trust any process that I wasn't in control of. And what is recovery? I can't be in control of the process. I have to hand it over to a sponsor, therapist, coach. And that's very hard for addicts to give up control of a process not be in control of that process. That's what makes recovery so difficult. But when you're willing to take direction and give that control over, that's when great things happen. And that's why, as we were talking about these celebrities here, um, it's very difficult for them to give up control. They are used to being in control. So what you're seeing with Harvey Weinstein and all these other people is not really about sex. It's about giving up control and power. And they have sexual rituals that they carry out, which in their, in their world is, is like alcoholic to an alcoholic, which if they don't give up the ritual, they'll never give up the sexual acting out. No, I 100% believe you. As a matter of fact, I used to work in a sexual abuse program where I treated all the offenders or perpetrators, the survivors, which were typically the kids, and the family right. members. And what we did in treating that family system is we, we explained that this really wasn't about sex. It was about right. power and control, and sex was one way to manifest that power and control. And Harvey seems like a perpetrator to me, i got to tell you. Sure he is. Sure he is. You know, I, 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 and I don't mean to offend anybody out there. I'm not, I'm not defending anybody out there, but these are the kind of um, individuals that I try to help. And really, you know, I always believe, this is my opinion now, I don't have, I, I, I don't say it's everyone's, but everything comes from early childhood messages, as I said. Everything comes from, did you see mom respect dad when you were young? Did mom, did dad respect mom? What did you witness as a child? Did you witness that women should be respected, should, should be, did you, did you have your needs met? Were you told, hey, how you doing, kid? What's going on? You look sad. Did you feel like you were powerless over the power? Did, did people uh, trying to control you as a child tell you what to do all the time? And then when you grow up, you try to gain back that control in, the, in these sick ritualistic ways. So everything, to me, stems from the childhood um, uh, messages that you receive. What did you receive mom and dad do? Did they respect each other? What went on with that? And I think I, I, I would be willing to bet that 
all of these celebrities that you see out there that have done these things, if I had them in a room and I really probed them, I would show, they would come up with the reasons why they didn't respect women, why they needed to gain control in their life, why they were ritualistic. And I'm not excusing any of their behavior, but it's always rooted in that childhood message area. And if, if you don't look under those unswept corners of your life, what happens is you reenact those things later on in life. And this is, again, what we do with my groups is we talk about each member has a ritual that they did in their sexual acting out. Each member has one. And if they don't surrender the ritual when it begins, they're never going to be able to surrender the sexually act, acting out. So every, every member, as I heard you say earlier, we all have secrets. And you know that old expression, we're only as sick, sick as our secrets we got to explain to all the members what exactly our ritual is, because that's the point that has to be surrendered. Not when you're ready to have sex with the person or that you're way beyond. You're never going to call your witnesses up at that point. You, the people well, that know, you know, truth I know have, now let me let's make it a little bit clearer, because we have sex addicts that listen to the show. We have clinicians right. that listen to the show, and then we have partners of sex addicts. So. Give my listening audience an idea of a couple of the rituals that end up getting, becoming reenacted because they don't work through it with other people. Well, you could have the ritual if, if you, you want me to give you examples of uh, how, how Harvey Weinstein was setting up the, the, the massages he was getting way before he actually had the person in the room. He, you know, the brain becomes hardwired. Uh, the, the dopamine, everything becomes uh, ignited way before the acting out. So it was luring the people to the room. What are they wearing? What are you going to tell them? How are you going to slip away? How are you going to come back naked? How are you going to – all of this stuff is super powerful. So if, 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 Harvey, if you think Harvey Weinstein is going to call somebody when he's all wrapped up and ready to go, he'll never do that. He's powerless, as we know in the first step, no power to do it. So he has to talk about and structure his life around recovery. And structure is a big word. You know, recovery is not something you can do Monday through Thursday and take Friday off and Saturday off. Recovery is a structure you have to adhere to on an everyday basis where you're constantly in touch with those witnesses or those people that know your truth. So you're constantly putting your discomforts out there because to me, addiction always starts with a discomfort. It doesn't start when we're ready to grab the bottle or the, or the drug or the, or the pornography. It happens when we have a discomfort. We don't know how to regulate that discomfort. We dis disassociate that discomfort and we go into that destructive entitlement, giving myself permission to do things regardless of what it costs me or my family. So it really starts from that discomfort. So in my groups, we talk about the discomforts first and foremost. How do we talk about what discomforts us in life on a daily basis that we could start to talk about that way before the ritual takes place? You follow me? Absolutely, 100%. So you look for those discomforts that have occurred from you know, wounded childhood experiences. Right. And then you watch how they reenact themselves as you go through puberty, as you become a young man or woman, as you are middle-aged. And those trauma reenactments, if you will, 
um, become embedded in part of the sexual acting out, the compulsive sexual behaviors. It's hardwired, correct. For instance, I'll have a client, all of a sudden he'll have, an, uh, he'll have a situation where his wife makes him feel like he's not important, whatever the situation is. So he's time traveling back to when he was a little kid and he felt like he didn't matter, like it was like he didn't matter. Now the discomfort's triggered. The disassociation starts, okay? And with the disassociation, the ritual pops up. It's, am I going to go home? How am I going to look at pornography? What room, what time? What am I going to see on a pornography? What sites am I going to? The ritual starts. But where does it really have its nucleus from? It has its nucleus from a discomfort that triggers a childhood wound. I don't matter. And believe me when I tell you, most of the time, my clients will tell me that one of the triggers they have in all areas, whether it's with boss, children, wife, husband, is I don't matter. Because, again, many addicts didn't feel like they mattered to their higher authorities, higher powers as children. So the discomfort is what starts that computer, that hardwiring going. That's what has to be surrendered. Not the point where they're ready to go on porn, because at that point, they're not calling anybody. They're done. It's the discomfort. It's, and again, it's learning how to regulate discomfort because many addicts never really saw their parents resolving discomfort. They saw somebody shutting down, running out the door, controlling the situation, always having to be right. So discomfort in their world was never resolvable. So when they get discomfort as an adult, okay, they go back to an unreal, unresolvable scenario, and it brings up a lot of fear and a lot of trauma. And that's where the ritual starts. Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. So now let me just ask you, would you say that Harvey, and we all know this is speculative. Neither one of us have ever worked with Harvey Weinstein, but is your gut that he has a sexual addiction? Yeah, I think his, well, let's talk, what what is addiction? And I, I think you'd agree that addiction is a symptom. The real problem is not the addiction. It's what lies underneath, the brokenness inside of the person. So whatever MO a person takes, in his case, it was a sexual MO, and it could have been triggered by some sexual trauma he had in his childhood. Or, uh, you know, there, 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 there are some people that, as little kids, you know, would touch it inappropriately, and the little kid might have, it might have felt good. So now we have attached shame and feeling good to that child's uh, brain chemistry. In other words, I know this is wrong. It's not supposed to feel good. I was touched inappropriately, but it did feel good. And now I got shame working for me. And maybe that's how from a bad childhood where he wasn't able to feel like he was important. Now that becomes his acting out symptom. Not his problem, his problems of brokenness inside, but that becomes his acting out symptom, which again, if, if, you, if, you had these, if I had these guys in a room and in my groups and stuff, I'd get to why his MO is his MO and, and, and how that became triggered in his life. Um, you know, we have processing addictions, we have gambling and we have uh, uh, pornography and we have spending, and then we have um, addictions that are more physically based, like uh, um, substance abuse, I mean, like alcohol and drugs. Why we choose certain things, you know, depends on some of our experiences in life. But regardless of that, all addicts have come from a childhood, in my opinion, that they felt somehow that they weren't important, that they weren't valued by their higher powers. And that's why they disassociated and had to find addiction to solve their problem. 
Well, 100%. So what I said is, do you think this is this is an addiction? And you basically said you believe that there's probably some significant core wounding that would meet yeah. the criteria for right. the substance, uh, you know, the problem that causes sexual addiction. Yeah, absolutely. And you also now, believe that this is much more about power and control than it is about right. sex. Absolutely. I think that it, 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 it comes from, I would like to know, you know, I would ask uh, Harvey, I would say, what was the relationship your mom and dad had? Did they respect each other? Didn't they respect? What happened when there was conflict? Did somebody, you know, um, overpower the other one, put the other one down? Uh, what was that like? You know, we all think that everything is about how our father relates with us or our mother relates with us. What about how our mother and father related with each other? How powerful is that? So what were the messages that were given to you? And I would also probe about, you know, was he touched inappropriately? What happened with that? And, and again, you know, we're in, unfortunately, an era of social media. Pornography is a leading online maker in America today. It makes more than any major league team in any sport. Somebody's watching porn. So it's happening now because moms are working, dads are working, kids aren't being watched as much as they used to. They're going on porn, and they're starting to attach things at 11, 12 years old. They're starting to watch porn. So uh, pornography and sexual addiction has become more of the go-to addictive symptom, if you will, um, in this day and age, more than anything else, because it's it's so readily available and uh, and it, it, it's right there with social media in front of you. So there's a lot of reasons why people have started to use that as a way to cope, as a way to medicate their pain versus um, other symptoms of, of drinking and other things that they could be doing. But you would find out, you know, why the MO is what the MO is. And it, it has a lot to do with, you know, how, how uh, uh, Harvey Weinstein's parents treated each other, um, how they, uh, they, they made him feel was, did he feel controlled? Did he feel powerless? Did he feel like his opinion didn't matter? All of these things, it's not one thing, but all of these things make up the chicken soup. And it's all different ingredients, but that's really what creates, uh, I believe, all of these uh, individuals you see as celebrities doing these things. I don't believe for a minute that somebody who comes from a, a childhood, a healthy childhood, where mom and dad nurtured each other, where they helped each other get out of their own messes, where they felt that you know, they were there for each other. I don't believe any of the, the celebrities you see acting out in sexually ways came from a childhood like that. I just don't. I could be wrong, but I just don't. No, I absolutely understand. So then one more time, how do you think somebody could then evolve into a sexual predator? Because i got to tell you, this is what Harvey Weinstein seems like to me, a sexual predator. And predators are often into power and control. Right. And, and, and I think somebody that's very, very angry inside, somebody that is trying to hurt others the way they're hurting, Somebody, again, that was bullied, abused, or was, was really hammered as a child, I think that's the somebody that can, can evolve into a sexual predator where they had experience with sex, where it felt good, it numbed their pain or medicated their pain, and then you add to that that anger inside of them, that self-hate. I believe all of these people that do this 
hate themselves. Truly, I believe that. I think that that's what what gives them that destructive entitlement, like the world owes me. Um, And I think that's where that destructive entitlement, as I call it, comes from. So I think that's what creates a a predator is a lot of self-hate coming from childhood where, you know, you, you, you really had a lot of anger and hostility in your in your younger days and you felt like the world owes you. I know for me as a recovering addict, I was a victim as a kid. I was molested. I had all the the abuses and I had this anger that said, man, this world owes me. Was I a victim? Sure was legitimate victim. But you know what happened is I wanted the world to pay the bill and the world wasn't going to pay the bill. And it got to the point where my wife and kids left me in my, 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 my 20s. And I had to say, listen, I got to work on me. But there was a time where I was in such uh, self-righteous anger. And I've heard that with Harvey Weinstein when, when he had talked about this. And I'll bet you you hear that with all these other people that have done things like that. The self-righteous anger, like, I deserve this. I, you know, um, the world owes me. And that's exactly the mentality of any addict in, with any addiction. That destructive entitlement, like the world owes me. And until they are willing to get help, not need to get help, willing to get help, nothing changes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so I want to tell everybody I'm talking with Thomas Gagliano, and he has written two books that really address issues both in core wounding and also parenting. So the first book is called The Problem Was Me, and that's, You know, where you talked about your father who didn't endorse you, that was very critical, who was neglectful, alcoholic. It's a great book, but it really helps people to identify how their own childhood issues have created the mess they're in right now. Would you agree? Yeah, and and, and in my book, it's about helping other people uh, using a, a fictitious character I call the warden. And the warden in my book is this intrusive inner voice, that inner voice that sabotages intimacy when it comes our way, tells us we're not good enough, uh, that little intrusive inner voice. And, and in my book, I try to help people silence that inner voice so they can free themselves from the warden and, and really take their lives to, to a new level. And, and so the second book that um, is your more recent book is Don't Put Your Crap in Your Kid's Diaper. The cleanup cost can last a lifetime, you say. Yeah. Now, it, tell people what they can expect with that book. And, and I, I want to first point out to everyone that parenting is a darn tough job. Um, I don't make light of that. It really is. So my second book, really, what I want to help parents do is recognize what areas of their parenting is strong and what uh, what areas might need a little uh, attention. Because I think when our children are born, many of us put so many expectations into our children. We sometimes put our fears, sometimes imagine more than real into our children. We already have them set up to be who we want them to be sometimes. And, and I know I've done that, too. So I want to make parents a little bit aware uh, of themselves because I believe self-awareness is the first key. And the second is with awareness, it gives me a better understanding of what actions to take. And if I can maintain those actions, man, I've changed the messages going out into my children's diaper now. And that's really what my second book's about. Got it. And so if people want to see your website, they want to be able to buy the book, your website is 
www.theproblemwasme.com. And where can they expect to see on your website? Well, in my website, I have some digital products on parenting and on self-help. I'm also, I'm kind of in the media a lot. Uh, You know, I have some media reels there. I'm on the Jenny McCarthy show about once a month and uh, John uh, Fuglesang, and uh, it was on the Dr. Oz show. So you see some interesting media reels on uh, on what I talk about, on addiction, on self-help, and on, on intimacy, relationship intimacy, because I, I really believe that what addiction is, is an intimacy substitute. I think people at an early age find that they can't trust other people for their nurturing needs, which sabotages intimacy, and they find this thing called addiction to fill that void. And I think it really is an intimacy substitute. I think all addicts, as myself, we're emotional cripples. We may be geniuses. We could be billionaires. We could be scholars. We could be everything. But when it comes to the emotional piece, we really need a lot of help. So you'll see a lot of stuff that will really help not only addicts but families of addicts. And, and not only that, just people that are just struggling with their intimacy issues. So hopefully uh, you could do and, and if anybody leaves me a message, I will get back to them with, with, with an answer within a few days. Well, and and Thomas, obviously, you treat sex addicts in group therapy. Do you see people individually and in couples work? Yeah, I do. It's funny because I really never look to be a couples consultant. I uh, I, I really uh, 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 I wanted to help individuals and groups, but I've I've had some good success in my groups where the guys. Uh, uh, have started to show up, as I call it, healthy adults and not scared little kids. And then I've started to do some couples uh, counseling as well. Um, you know, when, when there's nothing like when, when one person in the relationship changes, it really pushes the other one to take hold and take a peek at that. So that's where I started to consult with couples as well. Well, you know, it's obvious that you're very passionate about the work that you do. And, Thank you, you know, I so appreciate you having open dialogue about, you know, how media has contributed towards and affected this whole Me Too movement. Um, mm-hmm. Let me ask you something. Do you think social media has helped the situation or has it hurt the situation? I think you nailed both. It's helped and it's hurt. It's made the world smaller. It's made the world where we really know what's going on better. But in my opinion, it's also in some ways uh, enabled the frauds to come through quicker as well. You know, I just feel that, you know, there's, 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 so, much, uh, there's so much money to be made in a fraudulent way as well, you know, with, 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 with social media and with the – unfortunately, sometimes, you know, the bad stories get all the media too. And, and I think it's, it's both. I think it's helped a lot of people because, you know, we, we get to know what's really going on so we can get the bad guys out of there. And it's also opened up a medium for, uh, for frauds as well. And I think, uh, I think that's, that's how I could put it. I think it's done both. I think it's done both. Yeah, I certainly believe that it has allowed um, women especially, but men too. I put men and women as I described our show tonight. It's helped empower them to know that their voice counts because let's face it, yes. just like with sexual abuse, People feared not being believed, and they avoided yes. talking about it because they didn't want yes. that second betrayal. Absolutely. It's, it's certainly going to make things healthier in a lot of ways because now you, you, you better be careful on the things you, you do in this world because it doesn't take much to get that out there. And I think it, it, it has empowered 
a lot of women um, um, and men and, and to, to, to do more of the healthier things. Sometimes, unfortunately, you know, when there's a haven of power like that, sometimes you do have the bad apples that, that get in there and, 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 uh, and can, can do things for the wrong reasons as well. And I think that's something that, uh, that is also prevalent. But I certainly think it has empowered a lot of victims, legitimate victims out there to get their, to get their message out there. And it is going to make things a lot better because you've got to be careful now. <laughs> you know, you can't uh, assume that you're going to keep things uh, behind closed doors anymore, not with social media being the way it is. No, I know. It has really provided a mirror for exposing the real person in real time. Now, Absolutely. I want to ask you one last question before we end sure. for today. I want to know if somebody has um, someone in their life that has this kind of core wounding or maybe, you know, they are living with a narcissist or maybe their experience with their partner is very predator-like. I mean, what would you advise them? How, how can someone help? someone like Harvey Weinstein? Um, you mean somebody in a relationship with somebody like him? Is that what yep. you mean? Or, yeah, well, exactly you know, I, I tell, right, I tell everybody all the time, the most important relationship you have in this world is not with your wife or husband or with your kids or even with your God. It's the one you have with yourself. You have to, it's not selfish, it's self-care. You need to take care of yourself first. And if you're in a relationship with somebody that is a narcissist, abusive, uh, uh, um, any of those things, you need to get help yourself. That's the first step is go to get help yourself. You know, codependency is when I try to fix my partner more than they want to fix themselves. It doesn't work. So you need to go to get help yourself because you are the most important relationship you have in your life. You're the one that's going to show up in all your other relationships. So get help yourself. And believe me, I heard you talking, Carol, in the beginning of the show about fake it till you make it. Well, you know what? In life, sometimes you've got to do things before you feel like doing them. And that's just the way it is. I've got to take actions before I feel like taking the actions. And if you can do that and grab the whole of a fellowship of any kind and let them hold your hand through this, believe me, there's wonderful rewards at the end, and you're going to feel empowered and feel better about yourself. Absolutely, 100%. So as we end for tonight, what would you tell our listening audience that you think would make a difference in how they see the world? Um, I think that, you know, again, I, I just uh, I just love uh, my background uh, uh, is all fellowship. And I think, you know, the more you can talk to other people and uh, the more you get close to those supportive people in your life. I'm not talking about people that are going to judge you. You don't need those in your life. But when you can find a fellowship of your own, whatever that is, it doesn't mean you have to be an addict. And you could start to talk to people that you feel safe enough to share your feelings with. You can help them with their blind spots. They could help you with yours. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, situation for all people to be in. So I think, you know, finding a fellowship of some kind – a we process always works better than a me process to me. I think that really will open your horizons and, and help you in whatever you're battling in life. Yeah, that is so well said because I tell people day in and day out that the antidote 
for addiction, any kind of addiction, but certainly a process addiction like sexual addiction is mm-hmm. connection. And so for Absolutely. you to say fellowship is key to getting healthy and being authentic, um, yes. you're absolutely right on target there, Thomas. Thank you. Yes, I, I really do. I see miracles happen when people allow other people into their lives. And again, the right people. I'm not saying you're in a circle, people. Those are the people that will support you, not judge you. But I've seen uh, uh, miracles in my group. I've seen, uh, I, I can't tell you where, where I've seen some of my clients go from. I don't mean that for me in a bragging way. I mean because they've allowed themselves to take direction and allow other people into their life. Oh, I 100% agree. So you keep me posted of new books that you're writing and projects you're doing. And, um, again, I so appreciate not only your wisdom, but the fact that you're so open, honest, and transparent about the pain you suffered as a kid. And you've been able to turn that around, and that's what we want for all of our recovering addicts, to find a way to do that 12-step and turn their life around to help other people. Yep, absolutely. And, it, it you know, it takes courage to everybody out there that is struggling with uh, moving forward and allowing other people in their life, maybe it's a sponsor, going to a 12-step meeting, a therapist, a coach, struggling with that. I get it. I get it. It's the tough. The first step is the toughest thing to get your feet going in the right direction. And I, I remember going to, when I used to tell guys in meetings, say, I used to tell them, you know, just get your feet there because sometimes your head's not going to help you. Follow your feet there and get yourself to a meeting because that's the truth. <laughs> sometimes our best thinking is what got us where we are today. So we got to just follow our feet. Well, well said. Thomas Gagliano, thank you so much. Again, I'm speaking with the author of The Problem Was Me, and also Don't Put Your Crap in Your Kid's Diaper. Um, And to find out more about him, go to www.theproblemwasme.com. Thanks, Thomas. Carol, thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Absolutely. And we'll talk to you real soon. You got it. Take care. You too. Okay, as you can see, that man is passionate about making a difference in the lives of others. And we just hope he stays safe in uh, Jersey while there's that rainstorm going on. And, you know, I really admire anybody who can share what is going on in their life and how it makes a difference. Hey, you're listening to Carol Jurgensen Sheets. I am AKA Carol the Coach, and we'll catch you back here for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach next week. But as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And uh, like I said, go to my YouTube uh, channel sex help with carol the coach and get that information there's things for sex addicts there's things for couples there's things for um partners and hey speaking of partners i've got a new radio show an internet blog show and it's on thursdays and it's called betrayal recovery radio two o'clock I don't think we're quite up yet at iTunes. I'll have to check that today. Um, It takes a couple weeks, and we had our inaugural show last week. 
But I would love to have you. I'd love to have you listen. If you're a partner, this show is dedicated to partner betrayal and sexual betrayal. And so this is your show solely, although I always encourage sex addicts to um, listen to the show so that they can learn more about how a, how a partner feels and develop that empathy. I mean, I just gave a man today the homework assignment of reading My Sexually Addicted Spouse by Barbara Steffens. And um, that is his homework assignment so that he can understand why his wife doesn't seem to be letting go and trusting him yet. All right, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach. You make it a great week, and don't forget, figure out your affirmation. Talk to you later.